Well, today we're going to consider Revelation chapter 14. And verse 1, I saw, and behold, the Lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written or engraved in their foreheads. Now, what is the Lamb, that's the Lord Jesus, doing with the faithful 144,000 standing on Mount Zion? How is that position uh, attained? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 says that when the, the Lord comes, there will be the, the, the trumpet blast, and we shall be snatched away from whatever we're doing, and we shall meet the Lord in the air. And if you look at um, my, my, my book, The Last Days, you, you'll see my kind of take on that, that um, how do we get to judgment? That the generation that's alive when the Lord returns, which we, we believe is us, how are we going to get to, to the Day of Judgment? We have to go book a, book a plane ticket, we have to take a train, we have to walk there. How are we going to get there? The Lord Jesus says, don't worry about that. When the disciples asked that, he said, as the eagles uh, just sort of naturally go up into the air and then come down upon a, a carcass, they have a sort of a homing instinct. So likewise, don't you worry, you will just get there. You'll be snatched away and you will come to the Day of Judgment. Don't worry about how you're going to get there. And yet, 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we will meet the Lord in the air. Now, factor something else into this. There will be, to some degree, a, a choice as to whether we initially go with the, the angel or whatever message we get that the Lord is back, or whether we delay. You remember, of course, the, uh, the wise and the foolish virgins, that the foolish delay, and they run and... Uh, and try to get themselves ready instead of loving the Lord so much that they just say, well, hang, I'm not the best, I'm not in the best shape spiritually, but I love him and so I will go. Um, <clears throat> and because they delay, they come later and they're told, I, I never knew you. Whereas the faithful go immediately. So then, uh, and yet there is uh, Bible teaching to the effect that the faithful are gathered they are snatched away, as it were, into the air and gathered to be with the Lord. So what does that mean? As I see it, when the Lord comes, in that split second, when the first we know is, he's back, this is for real. And this goes for those that are resurrected as well. Um, our reaction in that moment is effectively our judgment. If we say, sure, I will go. Yes, great, he's back, of course aware of our own inadequacy and the rest of it, but I love him so much that I'm thrilled he's back, yes, I want to go. We will be confirmed in that desire and snatched away. And we therefore will meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, and come with him to judgment. Now, really effectively, our judgment was decided by us, uh, by our willingness to go. And it's those who are not willing to go immediately who are, as it were, left behind or, or will come later and will not be accepted. So then what it all comes down to is whether we love his appearing. And 2 Timothy 4, Paul says that, that all those that love his appearing will be accepted. Now, that implies a bit more than it might uh, initially seem, that if we so love him, love him enough that we love him more than we fear our own sin and our own failure and inadequacy, then that will be the sign that we really are his. If we believe in his love, 
to the extent that, wow, he's back. I so want to be with him, and he so wants to be with me that much I believe, then we will go immediately. So really, that split-second decision will be the, the summation of our whole spirituality. And what remains for us in this life, then, is to is to come to a point where we so love the Lord that we are confident in his love. It doesn't mean that we are unaware of our own inadequacy or our own failure, but that we are confident in his love, and that we're willing to go immediately. And I think that whole thing is, um, is kind of foretold, really, in that incident in the Song of Solomon where the girl is there asleep at night and the beloved comes and he, uh, he knocks on the door and she gets up and uh, she, she doesn't uh, go immediately. She puts her makeup on and she's, uh, she's got all this perfume and stuff on her hands and then she thinks, well, hang. Well, it doesn't say that, but, uh, you know, she thinks, hang. Uh, I love him. Okay, I, I will go and uh, open anyway. And she fumbles with the lock to the point that her, her makeup, her, her perfume that she's got in her hands is, is smeared all over the lock. And eventually she, uh, she gets the door open and he's gone. And she there, I, I think, looks forward to the... <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say this, but, but the unworthy, the, those who uh, want to get themselves ready and not meet him without their beauty sleep kind of thing and think that he'll only accept them if they make themselves look pretty, um, it's that which actually leads to our rejection by him. Because what he wants is faith, faith in his love. And oddly enough, it's one of the hardest things, I think, to have. It's the... Uh, <laughs> The most obvious thing that we should be able to believe in, his love is all around us if we have eyes to perceive it. Um, my point is that if we really believe that he has accepted me, and that, wow, he is coming and I shall meet him and be accepted by him and live forever with him, despite all my, all my failing, despite all my inadequacy and dysfunction, he loves me. If that is really the bottom line in our thinking and our whole psyche, then in that moment when we know the Lord is back, faith will be greater than our fear, and that we will go and we will be confirmed in that desire to go and be with him by being snatched away. And then we will meet him in the, in the air and we will come with him to judgment. It seems to me that the day of judgment is a coming before the Lord on his throne and where and what is his throne? It's a throne of David, which was in Jerusalem. So then, here we have the, the picture of the Lamb, Jesus, with the, the faithful, and there they are on Mount Zion. <clears throat> and they have his name, or his father's name, engraved in their foreheads. And straight away, I think you see there the supreme importance of spiritual mindedness that the name of the father the name of the son is essentially the character of god when moses wanted to have the name of yahweh declared to him yahweh or the angel passed in front of him and declared all the characteristics of god god a, a, yahweh a god full of grace of mercy of justice of integrity um not uh, forgiving the guilty uh, etc the name of god is essentially his characteristics and these people us have this engraved in their foreheads 
This is quite simply what characterizes those who are ultimately acceptable to him. It's who we are when nobody's looking. It's what we're thinking about when nobody else knows what we're thinking about. What you think about as you walk, as you sit on transport, as you drive maybe, as you lie in bed at night. What, what is subconsciously there in your mind and heart? This is the essence of the whole thing. It's not so much all these externalities, what we look like in the eyes of others, but whether we are spiritually minded. And of course the idea of having the name of Yahweh engraved in the forehead would have taken certainly the Jewish reader's mind back to, to the high priest with the mitre. It's as if every one of those 144,000 was kind of pretending at being the high priest, wearing the mitre with the, the name of Yahweh there, as it were, engraved upon, their, upon his forehead. Now, of course, there's only one high priest, and that is the Lord Jesus. But insofar as we believe that we are in him, that we are in Christ, all that's true of him becomes true of us. And, uh, of course, this was the idea of the Nazarite vow, I think, that uh, to, to grow their hair long to, uh, and to take on all the limitations that the, the high priest had when he was on duty, not eating the fruit of the vine, not mourning for the dead, etc. So this in itself is a, a tremendous uh, challenge to our spiritual ambition. We see the work of Jesus, and it's easy to think that I am just a passive recipient of this, but actually the invitation is to be like him, to in our own very small way, to do this for others, to be Christ to others. Yes, the high priest, and particularly in a Jewish mindset in the first century, this was a tremendous uh, challenge to, to their mind, uh, to, that you can actually be as the high priest. Who, me? No, I, I'm just a worshipper. I'm just a guy who goes to church. No, no, you can be so much more than that. You can be the high priest to this world, as we can be Christ to this world. And in fact, if we are truly in Christ, not just people who hope to pick up some kind of side benefit from uh, our vague association with him, but if we really get the point of what it is to be in Christ, all that is true of him becomes true of us. Okay, verse 3. They sing a song that no man could learn except these 144,000 which had been redeemed. Now, the idea that nobody else could learn the song would imply to me that other people wanted to learn it, but they couldn't. And this ties in with a, a great uh, theme in the New Testament, that at the day of judgment when the Lord finally returns, there will be many people who will want to be there, people knocking on the door, let me in, but they will not be able to. People who will, like Esau, seek to change, seek a change of mind of the verdict, and it will be too late. Nobody will be passive in that day. Nobody will be shrugging like they do today and say, you know, all that stuff didn't really mean anything to me. Or, well, it'll all be how it will be. Don't worry about it. I'm not that switched on about it. Well, you know what? I'm real busy just at the moment. I really have got too much in my life at the moment to think about God, Jesus, and the Bible. Now, now see you later. You see, in that day, nobody will be saying that. Nobody will be passive, indifferent. Everybody will want to be there. 
people will want to learn this song and will be unable to. And it's a beautiful figure, really, because it means that our salvation, our redemption, our eternal life that we will be given is like a song, that we will spend eternity singing that song, as it were. These are they, verse 4, who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I think this is, of course, uh, written by inspiration through John, and uh, I think there's a lot of connections between Revelation and the Gospel of John and the, the letters of John, and I think the connection here is with his comment about the women that followed Jesus to the cross. The women that stood by the cross also followed him from Galilee. And I think he has them in mind. His allusion here is saying those women that were with Jesus in the sunny good days in Galilee who also followed him to Jerusalem and actually followed him on the last walk to the, to the place of crucifixion, to Golgotha, and who stood there and were unashamed to identify themselves with him at the very last when everything seemed humanly so hopeless. Those women, I think, John is saying, are symbols of us all. That our loyalty to him, our following of him, is not just in the good times. It's not just in the sense of being part of the, uh, the Christian social club, cultural Christianity, when the going is easy. Going to the, uh, you know, having pizza together and uh, celebrating birthdays together with, uh, with your friends who also happen to be uh, in the same religious uh, churches as you. No, this is far more. This is the good times and the bad times. They have followed him wherever he goes. Now, there is, of course, a, uh, a bit of a paradox here because lambs usually follow. They follow a shepherd. But here we're told that these people follow the lamb wherever he goes. And I think you get there a very nice little cameo of the Lord's humanity, that he was the lamb who is now followed, or is to be followed. We are following someone who himself followed. And that, I think, is the, uh, is the power, practically, of understanding his humanity, his human nature, that he was not God himself in a Trinitarian sense. He had our nature. Um, <clears throat> and therefore and thereby, he, the lamb, becomes the, the shepherd. He's a lamb who can be followed, who is to be followed, um, because he followed the Father. <clears throat> Verse 5, In their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, James says very clearly that in some things we all offend with our mouths. He says some very tough things there about the tongue. He says that there's nobody in fact, who does not sin with their tongue. And so he says, don't rush to be teachers. Don't rush to be one of those people who does all the talking because it's inevitable that you are going to sin and offend somebody with your words. But then he also says, look, a fountain can't send forth both uh, bitter water and sweet water from the same place. It's not possible, really, that we are like that. You can't use bad words and, and good words. And yet he also says that unfortunately we all do. So I think what he's saying is that we are actually all at fault in the use of our tongue. And I, I'm sure we would all accept that. And yet here 
it says that we will be found with no guile and we will be without fault before the throne of God. Now I think we should give uh, due weight to those words. In their mouth was found no guile. They're without fault before or in the presence of the throne of God. So then it is that God and Jesus will choose not to see, not to count that guile that is in our tongue. And there's some wonderful words at the end of Jude where he talks about the way that we will be presented faultless before the presence of his glory without blemish in exceeding joy. Presented before the presence of his glory. In other words, in his opinion, and his opinion is the only one that, that matters, in his opinion, in his sight, in the way that he looks, he will see us without fault. And there's uh, a number of uh, verses, uh, particularly in Ephesians, where Paul sort of says the same, that we will ultimately be presented without fault. We are presented. It's not that we are faultless. It's that he chooses to see us that way. And this is, of course, the whole point of righteousness imputed, that God and the Lord Jesus choose to look at us as if, we are without sin, without fault. And really, is this not what love is all about? That we are, to when we love somebody, we, we love them in the sense of seeing them without fault. It's not that you actually don't see the fault. It's like, you know, why does a woman marry an alcoholic? You say, look, don't you see that he's alcoholic? Yeah, 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 I see that. Of course, she's not blind. People are not, you know, love is not, in fact, blind. That's silly to say love is blind, because it isn't blind. It's just that within the context of that love, one chooses to see the person all the same in a very positive way. And this is really what love is. And this is certainly the love of God toward us, in counting us as if we are faultless. Now, we are helped, of course, in this particular matter of... Um, what it says there in verse 5, in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault. You, you may like the scribble there in your margin, First of Peter 2, verse 22, because we have the very same words written there, First of Peter 2, 22, about the Lord Jesus. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And in the context, Peter is talking about how Jesus, when he suffered for us, did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. So what he's saying is that how Jesus was, as he suffered, particularly in his time of dying, as he suffered before the provocation of those, those terrible uh, courts that he had to stand before, uh, and in his final death, that how he was then is counted to us now. Now don't forget there, Peter does say in the run-up to that, that Jesus did all this to set us an example that we should follow in his steps. So it's not as if we can shrug and say, ah oh, yeah, well that's pretty cool, so then all that righteousness is counted to me. Yes, it is counted to you and me. We are counted as being without fault and without guile in our mouths, but... That is so wonderful that we can't be passive to that. 
and therefore it becomes an example to us that we should follow in his steps. So we will stand there perfect. And even now, in his eyes, we are. It's absolutely wonderful. So then, we are in him, and we therefore are counted as in him, and we therefore are him to this world. And I think you see a, a little bit of that again, in the, straight on in verses 6 and 7, where he sees a, an angel flying in the midst of heaven, midst of heaven uh, having the good news of an eternity, uh, the good news of eternity to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying, Fear God, give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now this is, it seems, a last-minute appeal <clears throat> from God, from heaven, to the people of this world to repent. This would be right just before the final judgment upon Babylon. This is a last-minute appeal to every nation, tongue, and people. And yet, those words are used by the Lord Jesus when he says that in the last days... The gospel will go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And you know, how practically is this going to happen? It says here that this angel is going to do this, and that this is the appeal of God uh, to these people, uh, to the whole world. But how will this happen? It will be done through us. Now, what I mean is that you can read in the Bible prophecies about preaching, about God appealing to people. But sort of mechanically, practically, concretely, this is fulfilled in us, because we are him and we are his voice to this world. So, verse 10, we then uh, uh, get the, um, the warning that if anyone now, from now on worships the beast in his image, receives his mark in their forehead... He shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his, his anger. Now, this whole idea of a cup of wine. Now, a, being given a cup of wine to drink is a double symbol. 1 Corinthians 11, context of the breaking of bread, Paul says that it is the cup of blessing which we bless, which is the sign of the fellowship that we have in the blood of Jesus. But here, to be given a, uh, a cup of wine to drink is to be given, to be handed condemnation. And I think that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you should examine yourselves. Because you are either drinking that cup to your eternal blessing or to your eternal damnation. And that's why he says examine yourselves, lest you come together to keep this feast to your condemnation and not to your blessing. And so it's great that it's a double symbol because it forces us up against a, a, a T intersection, a T junction. It's either to the right or to the left. There is no third way. There is no purgatory. There is no, you know, yeah, well, okay, I'm not good enough to be in the kingdom, but I don't want to be damned, so give me some uh, third way. And there's so many religions come up with it, these third ways because it's so attractive, but the Bible is not like that. There are only these two possible uh, destinies that, that we have. Now, in chapter 18, verse 3, when again we read about the judgment of Babylon, we're told that all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So, in this life, those people drunk that cup. And then they are given this cup to drink again, 
in the sense of being judged. So in fact, people are drinking to their own condemnation now. We make the answer now. So then it's not as if the Day of Judgment is to be some sort of great unknown to us. So often in the Psalms, David talks about God's word as if it is his judgments. And he thanks God for revealing his judgments. You see it all through Psalm 119. So the Day of Judgment should not be for us some sort of unknown agony that is sort of some unknown question mark at the end of our lives. The Day of Judgment is our meeting with the Lord. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And yes, there there will be um, the, the final and the ultimate taking account of human action, human thought, human behavior, that is without question. But, uh, as I said earlier, it is our love for him and his love for us, which is the, the perspective that we ought to have. Now, there in Revelation uh, 13, sorry, 14, um, we're told that, uh, that those people who are given this cup of the wine of the wrath of God will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up for ever and ever. Now what are we to make of that, a God who takes no pleasure in punishing the wicked? Well, I think the allusion there is to Sodom. The whole appeal about Babylon, you know, come out of her so that you don't get caught up in her judgment. This is all framed in the language of uh, Sodom that Lot was to come out of Sodom, lest he be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And he he does come out, and then fire and brimstone come down from God out of heaven, and Abraham and the angels get up early in the morning and watch it. And Abraham sees the, the smoke of Sodom ascending. And it is very similar here, it's clearly an illusion. But Abraham didn't stand there forever and ever, watching the smoke ascending. Jude says that Sodom suffered the vengeance or the punishment of eternal fire. Well, it wasn't literally eternal fire, because Sodom's not on fire at the moment. What I think it means is that that punishment, that judgment, had eternal consequence. And so that that is, I think, the idea here, that these people will be punished, not literally with with plumes of smoke that go up literally forever, but in the sense that their punishment, their, their death, has eternal consequence. The sense of the future that we might miss ought to be very deep within us, that there can there will be no indifference to the punishment of eternal death. It may not be literal torture, well it won't be literal torture, but it will be an eternal death. And the fact that one has missed out on eternity is effectively, in this language of, you know, it's like Sodom, punished with eternal fire, destroyed, but forever and ever, day and night, forever and ever and ever, there is that sense, that, uh, that reality, that that future has been missed by those who are condemned. Now, in what sense, then, will this always be? 
in the presence of the Lamb, the angels and us, like, it, like Abraham watching the plumes of smoke ascending from Sodom. I wonder if, throughout the ages of eternity, we will in some form be aware of those who failed of God's grace, of those who rejected it against themselves, that their eternal missing of the future will always be somehow in our awareness. And why? So that we forever and ever and ever will be aware of God's grace, because we will all be surely aware that there, for God's grace, went I, because the whole salvation thing is all by grace. It's not of him that wills or him that runs, but but of God that shows mercy. So I think, in that sense, we may be aware of the sense of of a future that those eternal future that, that those people missed to highlight to us our own sense of eternal gratitude for grace. And these people who fail to, to um, be in God's kingdom, who are eternally destroyed, verse 11, these are those who worship the beast and his image, his icon, and who receive the mark of his name. And we're told in the verse 9, that they received that mark in their forehead. And so we go back to verse 1, that the faithful, the beast that they worship is the lamb, and his name is written on their foreheads. And so then, <clears throat> the image of the beast, the icon of the beast, is a sort of an anti-Christ. Now, when we talk about anti-Christ, the word anti or ante in, in Greek does not actually mean uh, against. It means like a kind of an alternative, a, a fake, a pseudo-Jesus. Uh, so there is a whole system in this world with its icon, with its image, its beast, its mark in the forehead. And that system is one system, and it is in a sense a, a copy, an imitation in terms of outline structure, of the, the true image which we are to have with a beast, which is the lamb, his image in us, and his name in our foreheads. And so, again, there is no third way. It is either to be spiritually minded, and to sell our souls, and to sell our hearts and our minds for the things of God, to not fill our minds with all the nonsense that is in this world, in their novels, in their TV, in their internet, and in all the nonsense that, that's going on here that, that just fills people's mind with garbage and with sin, but to be spiritually minded, to, to take a pocket Bible with you around the place, to listen to, to godly things on your MP3, to look at the things on the internet or whatever that are spiritual and not things that are unspiritual. Because, as I say, there is no third road. There are two huge systems. And we are to identify ourselves with God's name and the things of, of the Lamb, not the things of the beast. And so, the final harvest, uh, we read about in verse, uh, verse 15, that an angel comes out from the temple and cries with a loud voice to him that sits on the cloud, uh, send forth your sickle and reap, for the time is come to reap, because the harvest of the earth is ripe, or the Greek says, is overripe. So then, the harvest, the fruit is ready. 
when the fruit is ready, then Jesus comes. And I don't know quite how to exactly interpret that, but I guess the fruit is spirituality. It is the fruit of the Spirit. You could argue here that the earth here is talking specifically about the land, that is, of Israel. Um, and it may be talking about a time when there has been a sufficient repentance, a, a sufficient amount of spiritual fruit within the land of Israel, and then it is reaped. And that is why, later on, in chapter 14, we read about a second harvesting of the vine of the earth, um, which is cast into the, the winepress of the wrath of God, and this is trodden, and the, the blood comes out, verse 20, up to 1,600 furlongs, which, is, which was the, uh, the length of the land from Dan to Beersheba. So you could argue this is saying that when there is fruit on the fig tree, that when there is spiritual fruit in Israel, when a certain amount of repentance has taken place and acceptance of Jesus and living according to the Spirit, then Jesus will come back. And if that is the case, then we should be out there witnessing the Jewish people all over the world, particularly in the land of Israel, to bring people to baptism and, and conversion. Or it could be saying in, in a wider sort of sense that within the body of, of believers over time, once a certain amount of total fruit has been brought forth, uh, and our last generation will therefore be crucial in influencing exactly when Christ will come. Uh, that he will come once that amount of fruit has been produced. So, insofar as we show the fruits of the Spirit, that love, joy, peace, patience, uh, etc., in our lives, to an acceptable degree, then the Lord will come. And yet it says here that the harvest was overripe. And I think that that does imply a delay, that actually the harvesting was not exactly when it could have been. It was a little bit delayed. And that is what we'd expect, because um, in the parable in Matthew 24, because the Lord delays his coming, the, the servants start to eat, drink, and beat each other up. So there's a delay. And you get that in the next parable, straight on in Matthew 25, where the bridegroom, that's Jesus, delays. He tarries. It's the same word, the same Greek word as in the parable of Matthew 24. And because he delays, some of the, the virgins, um, well, they all actually slumber and sleep, but some of them are found to just not have enough spirituality, not enough oil in their lamps, and they are lost. So that would imply to me that there is a kind of delay when the bad servant says, my Lord delays his coming. Well, he's actually right. According to Matthew 25, the bridegroom does delay. The question is how we cope with that delay. Now, it's hard to understand all the factors in this final uh, equation. But according to 2 Peter 3, Peter seems to be saying there that there is some kind of delay in the Lord's coming because he is not willing that any should perish. In other words, if the Lord had come, let's say, 50 years ago, none of us here uh, would have a chance of eternity. And he knew that and he saw that very clearly. And so it was delayed. And so this delay, according to the parables there in, in Matthew 24, 25, this delay is going to be very hard to cope with. 
because for some they will the light will go out altogether. Spirituality goes out. They start beating the fellow servant. They get caught up in the good life, eating, drinking, getting drunk, enjoying themselves, human pleasure, all because of this delay. But that delay is there so that more people can come to the hope of the kingdom. And that delay is obviously there so that we should go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people. Try to enable it, even if you can't personally participate. Take the gospel, the true gospel, to all the people in your world. And now, with the internet, you have the opportunity to take it all over the place. By witnessing in chat rooms, by, by making contact with people, uh, and trying to persuade people all over the world of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in grace and truth. So then, we are certainly, it seems, living towards the end of time. We pray and hope that we're in that last generation. And the quicker that we get out there and make that witness to all the world, and the quicker that we develop spiritually, it's this fruit that is being looked for, the ripe fruit that is being looked for, uh, by the angels looking down from heaven to see whether we've got to that point or not, uh, the quicker we, we get there, the quicker the Lord will be back. So then, in that wonderful day, we will then be snatched away, and even if we fall asleep in the Lord before then, we'll be resurrected, and the first we will know, we'll be there, faced with the reality that, wow, he's back. And our love for him must be stronger, and surely is stronger, than our fear of our own weakness, dysfunction, sin, failure, all the rest of it. And we will want to go immediately with him. Because we know that in the end, his love for us is stronger by far than our failure and our weakness. And so, what we have to look forward to, and what we experience right now, really just could not be better. This is the most profound situation, not just future, but situation in life, that God could have thought up. And the fact is he's chosen to give it, chosen to, give it to, to you and me.